river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm a Welcome back to the podcast. Bob Borland here. James Orr. How are you doing tonight, James? Awesome. And yourself, Bob? Good. We uh, just talked some elk hunting with probably one of the uh, best elk hunters out there, for sure. Yeah. I mean, man, that guy has been at it. Yeah, 75. He killed three bulls this year. He killed two last year. I asked him, uh, before, you know, when I was setting this thing up, like, how many elk do you think you've killed, Paul? And he's like, well, I don't know. You know, he's like, I've been doing it uh, 14, I don't know, probably 55 or so. <laughs> and and he has been hunting big bulls since uh, probably the early 80s, I would guess. You know, like just trying to kill a big bull to extend his time and to, to learn more, basically. So the amount of bulls that guy's killed is just unreal and not just elk he's killed everything buffalo sheep yeah i mean just africa i mean he is he told us he's killed a hundred animals with his bow horizontal to the ground yeah a hundred animals with his bow horizontal to the ground yeah that that's ridiculous yeah and he's like you said he's drawn blood in like every continent in the world i mean that guy is he's an animal yeah and um it just you know there's a lot of different ways to shoot trap bows these days and and a lot of the the newer ways definitely help when you're getting started and everything but listening to a guy like paul bruner here you can't help but appreciate the the art of instinctive shooting basically and how good he has is at it you know to shoot a hundred animals basically laying on the ground with your bow sideways it's like an extension of your body and so you know it was awesome having that discussion with him because we don't hear enough of it i think anymore because it takes so long i think to master so many arrows you know yeah 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 and, it's and impressive uh, he had some good instruction from john schultz it sounded like early on who everybody knows that was howard hill's buddy and and i don't think he could have a better teacher than that but no, I mean, it's cool talking to a guy that's like, oh, Fred Bear, yeah, that was my good buddy. And, I mean, he's just been around the block. He's been through the weeds. I mean, that guy uh, is so seasoned. It is, it is so neat to do this podcast and, and have the opportunity to talk to somebody like Paul Bruner. Yeah, for sure. We started it off with some Paul Schaefer stories, too. Everybody knows that was kind of my yeah. hero and uh he was good buddies with him, so we got some good shave stories out of it and a lot of good good elk hunting stories. So um, you guys will really enjoy this one. And our Instagram pack giveaway is going on, so don't forget to uh, tag a buddy. Check it out on Instagram. We're giving away a Kafaru Terriol pack. Thanks, Aaron, for hooking us up with that. And let's see what else we got going on. We still have some shirts and hats for sale. You uh, deadbeats get on there and buy some stuff from us so we can afford to keep doing this. 
before a wife shut us down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's inevitable, yeah. probably. Yeah, we got some we got some more giveaways coming up from uh, Bear Archery's hooking us up. So yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, we're trying to take care take care of you guys. Um, we're doing it for you guys. So please tell your friends about the podcast. Um, it's definitely growing, and we're having a lot of fun with it. And we're gonna keep doing it as long as we feel uh, we're spreading the good word that's right enjoy if you're a salesman press one and hang up if you're an attorney press two and hang up if you're from the irs put a 45 in your mouth and press trigger otherwise leave a message at the tone please record your message when you have finished recording you may hang up or press one for more options hey paul how you doing man Good. Good. I got my uh, partner in crime, James, on the other line. James, say hi. Hi, Paul. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Thanks for uh, taking the time out. You filing on a self-blowing there? Yeah. I've been... uh, Normally, we go to New Zealand right after Christmas, and Karen has to have surgery on her foot. So I'm going to be building bows all winter. So I'm lining them up. Nice. What what are you building that one out of? Osage. Yeah, is that your preferred bow wood? Well, I do a lot of yew uh, wood, uh, Osage, and some thorn apple. Thorn apple? I never heard of that. Well, there's a, uh, I can't think of what the Latin name for it is, but it grows all over Montana, uh, a lot of places in Wyoming, the northern Dakotas, and it's what the what the uh, Indians here used because they didn't have yew or osage, and uh, it makes a heck of a bow, but it's got to be sinew backed. Okay. Okay. And that sinew backed. Do you have issues with the humidity and stuff? Because I've I've talked to our buddy Carson. He's big into the self bows, and he's kind of not against it, but he hasn't experimented with it enough. To where, you know, like if you're hunting in the wet climate over here in the jungle where we hunt or, you know, the cold, dry climate, it can make a difference. Is there anything you put on them or do you have that down well, or what? You know, I finish my bow, uh, bows with flectoverethane and that helps. But I took um, I took a couple of my sinew back bows to Hawaii and in a week or so they had lost about 15 pounds. Wow! I brought them. I brought them back Dang. to Montana, and they came right back to their normal weight. Wow! So you just got to hunt with those where you made them. <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah. Probably that's fairly accurate. Um, but you know, I took some to Missouri last week, and they were fine. Yeah. So, I think if you took one down to Georgia or Alabama. It would lose weight, but it's still going to shoot fine. Yeah. Well, I'll have to. I'll have to get them around to trying some of that because supposedly that makes them pretty indestructible. Have you ever had one break? You've sent you back. You know, I have, but um, in fact, it was really interesting because it had sheep horn on the belly, and I hunted with it for oh gosh, four or five years. Very small. I think it was. 50 inches, uh, 70-something pounds at my draw. Killed game with it in Africa. 
and one day I strung it up and it blew up. <laughs> <laughs> That's the life of a self bow right there. Yeah, and it, that uh, you would. There was an air pocket in one of the limbs, oh. and so I was I was lucky that I shot it as much as I did. Awesome. So we got uh, we got Paul on here tonight. Uh, I think any of you guys that are traditional bow hunters that have listened already know who Paul Bruner is. And if you haven't, you should probably listen to uh, uh, Traditional Outdoors. They did an awesome one with Paul a while back, and they talked about filming and all that stuff. Uh, but we want to talk about elk hunting. We're elk nuts, just like Paul is. And, you know, I've chatted with him on the phone, and he doesn't even know how many he's killed. Not that that matters, but 55 or so is quite a few. But before we get into the elk hunting, I'm also a huge Paul Schaefer fan, and uh, I know you knew Paul really well. I've read some articles when I was younger, you and Paul, and maybe you could uh, maybe tell us one of your stories with Paul Schaefer before we get into the elk hunt. <laughs> you know, it's hard because there are so many. Um, <laughs> well, you could tell us a couple. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorites is Schaefer and I went to a local ranch. I, I had a cattle ranch in Montana in the Blackfoot River Valley, and a neighbor had told me when I saw him at the local store, I got a bunch of elk in my oats, and I'd really like to get rid of them. So we went up there and explored, and we found this beautiful basin up behind his property. And we uh, we went in, and there were just elk sign everywhere, a lot of wallows. And we could hear a bull just screaming up above us, and you could hear him splashing and breaking brush. And it was my turn to shoot, and it was Schaefer's turn to call. And he dropped down below me in a bunch of little tiny Christmas trees about five feet tall. And I got on this little position where, it would, you know, if he called, the bull was going to have to walk by me. And here came the bull, and he had a huge clump of mud and timothy grass in his antlers, and he is just rank. He was looking for trouble. And he came by me at about six feet, and I'm sitting there not moving, and as soon as I started to draw, he just blew up, and he ran down the hill, and he stopped right in front of Schaefer and looked back up the hill. <laughs> And I can remember saying in my head, bad move. And then I heard, twang, thunk. <laughs> oh, man. That bull went right over backwards. He did a backflip and dropped. Wow. You know, Schaefer was probably the greatest bow hunter who ever lived in the world. He was just unbelievable. Yeah, I loved reading. I loved reading his stories when I was a kid. It's too bad we lost him while he was young and didn't get yeah. twenty more years or thirty more years worth. And uh, it's awesome to talk talk to guys that still knew him, like yourself. Well, we hunted together mostly elk hunting, but some whitetail hunting. We hunted together for fifteen years, and Barry Wenzel called me to tell me he was dead, and I just cried like a baby. Yeah. Because he was my friend. He came to the ranch, and Karen at that time did not have her muscle disease. And so she and I on Schaefer hunted elk together, and 
she was the only woman who could ever keep up with him in the hills. So, you know, it was a pretty special deal when Shay came up for the weekend and we hunted. Yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> so cool. There are so many stories about Schaefer, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it just, they go on and on and on. Yeah, um, he was definitely... Yeah, let's hear another one. Okay. The same basin that we went into, um, he shot a bull. Well, the one the one I just told you about, as a matter of fact. And so, and we could hear elk bugling down below us, but we went back to my place and picked up my horses and brought them up there the next morning early. And his bull, of course, had been gutted and laid out on some lodge pole with some pine boughs over it to keep the birds and bears off. So we go in in the morning with the two horses, and I could hear elk beagling. So I said to Shafe, you know where the elk is? Yep, no sweat. Well, I'm going to go around this way and see if I can get in on them. So I worked down and worked down, and here was this bull just screaming his brains out, and I whacked him. And he ran between two lodge poles, and so help me, I heard, boing, 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 boing. His, his antlers got caught between the trees. <laughs> he was stuck there. By the time I got to him, he was dead. So I gutted him out, quartered him, put him up on logs. In those days, I was a lot stronger than I am now. So I went up to where I expected to find Schaefer, and I went up through the trees, and I found Schaefer's dead bull and no sign of Schaefer. No horse tracks, no nothing. So I did some signal bugles, you know, three bugles in a row, nothing. And about an hour later, I hear some branches breaking, and here comes Schaefer. He looks like he is just about to fall off his horse. And the story gets great because... On our way out, when we finally got the bull loaded up and stuff, we follow his horse tracks, and he's telling me this story. He said, well, I, I couldn't find the bull. So I kept going around and said I climbed a couple of really tall trees to see, you know, where I was. And he said, I kept going around here, going around there, and pretty soon I saw an axe on the ground. And I looked back on the saddle where I had tied an axe and it was there. It wasn't gone. It, it was the one that had been on the saddle. So he said, I tied that back on and came to this really big pine tree. I looked familiar and then he saw a bow landing up against it. He realized he'd left his bow there. <laughs> so by this time, you know, he's, he's telling me the story. And I found out later that day, he was hypoglycemic. If he didn't get candy or sugar, he get really weak I never knew it and he said that he just couldn't even keep his eyes open and he kept finding tracks and can't figure out who would be up there with a horse and then he realized oh those are my tracks and finally he ran into me and then we packed the two elk on the horses and got out of there and we're going down the hill and I had an Appaloosa and that horse could trip on a blade of grass and he was going downhill real slowly and just not doing his job. And Schaefer picked up a stick and whacked him right on the back end. And I heard this thing like a rifle shot. A whack. That horse kicked him right on the kneecap and down went Schaefer. 
and he was impervious to pain. I, I've never known a stronger human being. And he got up, and he limped over to the front of the horse, and he grabbed him by the snout, and he said, you do that again, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so help me, this is all true. So pretty soon the horse picked up his pace, and down to the truck we went. But it was uh, just every time we went out, there was some sort of a story. He was just a great guy. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. That's well, so thanks. cool. We appreciate sharing that with us. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, so let's let's get into elk hunting. When did you start elk hunting with a bow, Paul? Um, when I was fourteen. And, and so what year I, was that? Just to, not to age you, but just to let our listeners know how long ago that was. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm seventy-five, so that would have been nineteen fifty-seven. And my mom shot a white-tailed buck with a bear recurve, and I was hooked. And I got in on a bugling bull by myself, and in those days I was not even five feet tall. And this guy was ripping trees and screaming and going crazy, and I got probably 40 yards from him, and I saw him, and I turned and ran. <laughs> I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> and you know once i got a little bigger and got a little smarter um i just i got hooked on elk i mean when they bugle the hair on the back of my neck stands up it's been uh all those years but uh that was you know when i wasn't in montana and when i came to montana in 1968 that's when it really blew up because we had so many elk around and no bow hunters yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine hunting back what? then. What was the? Were you guys calling back then, or I know that you know, little my dad started bow hunting. I think seventy five, and back then all they had was like those gas flexes that just kind of tooted a little bit. Like, what were you guys using back then? Well, we used a piece of radiator heater hose, and then uh, carved a wooden plug in it and cut a notch and. It sounded sort of like a train whistle, but the old outfitters, um, I lived very close to the Copenhaver brothers, very famous old outfitters. They used to use a 30-06 shell. They'd just blow on it. And to give you an idea, I never saw a bow hunter in the woods for nine years hunting in Montana, and then the first guy I did see was just driving out in his pickup truck. Wow. It's just yeah, it was amazing, and I swore that I would never pay to hunt elk, and we had elk on our ranch anyway, and now, if you want to hunt elk, you've got to pay. You've got to go on a private property where everybody isn't goosing the elk around, and people know how to call, and I quit googling. I only cow call. Really? Yep. Uh, you know, no you more bugling. Be... When when did you stop bugling? Oh, oh, probably ten or twelve years ago. You know, it was uh, it was after Schaefer was killed, um, and Schaefer and I, the last three or four years before he died, started calling in bow hunters instead of elk, and both of us sounded like elk. And nowadays, the bow hunters have got store-bought elk calls 
They bugle too much. They bugle too loudly. Bugle too often. Um, it, it's just turned it into a circus. And a lot of the bulls in our area here, uh, even down in New Mexico, they're getting bugle shy. Yeah, for sure. When you when you have forty thousand bow hunters out there calling <laughs> calling into every canyon for a month straight. Yeah, and yeah, we've we had were a lot just talking of about that today. We've had a lot of trouble in the in the walk in areas with these guys on four wheelers, even though it's illegal. So I started hunting on on ranch properties and in the beginning I could get permission on neighbors, but now you gotta pay. And it depends on where you're hunting and how much you have to pay. Uh, but you get undisturbed elk. And that, yeah, that's sure. how you're supposed to hunt them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's tough anymore, that's for sure. So back back in the 70s and 80s, back when you were bugling before you guys stopped, um, I, I know I read articles too where even back then you were holding out for for big bulls, like 300-inch bulls, you know, big six points. Um, was that just to prolong your season, or, you know, how did that work back then? Because you were the only guy that I knew of doing it, and I was just a kid reading articles, you know, with a real bow. Too well, uh, it was partly to prolong the season, but it was just we had killed enough elk that we just didn't want to shoot something small. Uh, and the challenge is to find one of the big boys and figure out if you can call him away. Um, I shot three bulls this year, which is the first time I've ever done that in one season. And I called in two, and the other one came into a water hole. And you also got two last year, too, didn't you? Uh, I think so. <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think I So, did. Paul... So, Paul, when you say that you're just cow calling, could you uh, tell us a little bit about your call, calling uh, techniques and tactics? And what you know, are you using cow calf, and or what what type of vocalizations are you using? Well, I've got some of the. Uh, I'll walk into the other room here. I've got some Primos cow calls, um, and there's one I like a lot called Make It the Bulls Crazy. So obviously mm-hmm. the guy that named it was Italian. Uh, <laughs> let's see what else I've got here. Uh, yeah, I've got some so uh, like Carlton's. So you like a sound soundboard open read type call? Yeah, and the smaller the better, um, just because it's a handful and you're trying to keep your tab in shape and all that. And I I don't call a lot. I just call a little. If I get a bull hot, then I start doing the estrus call, and it just really lights them up. And lots of times you'll be literally walked over. I mean, I've actually had the spook elk that were going to run over me if I didn't. So is that like a elongated, nasally type cow? Uh, uh, well, uh, can I do a call over the phone? Yeah, give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, we'd like that. All right. Uh, hang on a minute. I'll grab one here. All right. Let's see here. What have we got? Okay. Um, I have to get my mouth wet. 
normally what I'll do is I'll just give a cow call like this. And then if I get a bull really talking, and that's an estrus call. That says, I am ready, come and get me. Yeah. And you just have to know when to use it. The more you hunt, the more experience you get. So um, that's what seems to work. I like it. Last year... I was in an ambush situation because I just had a new knee put in and in some junipers. And I had, oh gosh, probably 60 elk go by me at 15 yards. And they were coming into a huge alfalfa field. And I passed up two or three sixes. And then I heard this honker above me and over the hill he came at about 20 cows. And they went right down the trail at 15 yards. The last cow took off and headed right towards me. I was pretty sure she was going to roll over me. And this bull followed her, and he was big. And she ended up walking by me at a measured six feet. Mm. (laughs) And the bull went by at six feet. And then he bugled. And I were in the air hearing aids, and it shut them both off. Wow. I couldn't, I couldn't draw my bow. And then she turned and went towards the other cows. He turned. Then she turned sideways again. He turned. And I drilled him at six yards. That's exciting. Oh, yeah. It doesn't Very. Get, doesn't get any better than that. And while we're on the, the you couldn't draw part, I know James and I, that was our kind of biggest struggle. We both started with compounds and, and moved to the stick bows and, and it's so much different calling an elk when you can draw and hold forever. Um, so knowing when to draw with a a stick bow is super important. Like, what tips can you give? Are you always, you know, like, I know part of it is just the feel and the experience and all that. But are you, you know, waiting for them to come by more often than not? Like, after they pass, are you shooting them? Like, what's your what can you give the listeners as kind of a little tip? Cause a lot of guys are switching back to recurves now. And I think that's one of the biggest frustrations they have for being used to calling the walks behind a tree at 50 yards. They can draw back and wait and wait and wait and then shoot. Well, uh, it's experience, I guess, but I'm a snap shooter when I'm standing outside shooting at a, stump or something, I come to full draw and I aim and shoot. I mean, it's not slow, but usually on an animal, because I've shot bows, thousands and thousands of arrows, I just draw and shoot because my eye is looking where the arrow is supposed to go. And so it's so quick, the animal doesn't have a chance to see me, to jump, to do anything. And I don't shoot over 20 yards. Okay. Um, I prefer stuff at around four feet. <laughs> <laughs> That's your wheelhouse, about four feet. <laughs> I like it. Well, one of the bulls I shot this year was twenty-five feet from me. Nice. So that—that's where the snap shooting comes in, right there. Being able to make that quick, quick little shot on those elk when they get right on top of you—that's. 
I got to practice yeah. that a little bit. You know, everybody nowadays is draw and hold and hold and hold and aim real good and then shoot. And I'm, I, I shoot pretty fast compared to most people. I think you know, just because I'm probably doing everything wrong. But I'm gonna have to uh, add that to my little bag of tricks. A quick little, quick little snapshot before they wheel and take off. I like it. Yeah, it's you know, and I shoot so much. I mean, I'm build bows. Um, I'm always shooting, and you know, out of a tree stand or a blind, I, you know, a raised blind, I'll shoot 65 pounds, but I'm still shooting 74 on the ground uh, wow. because I'm 75 years old, but I'm also, I've been shooting that weight through, I don't know, 20,000 arrows, and so it isn't a big deal to just draw and shoot. I don't have to think about it. And I used to do quite a few instinctive shooting clinics. And you'd be surprised at how many people don't really know how to shoot instinctively. It's it's something that you have to demonstrate, explain. Uh, in theory, you should be able to lie on your back and shoot, lie on your stomach and shoot, kneel, uh, bend over backwards, because the bow needs to be just an extension of your body. And as far as your clinics, like is is shooting like the amount of shooting the most important part, like of the amount of arrows going through your bow? I mean, obviously, you know, you want your anchor point and all that the same, but just, I mean, is that number one? Thousands and thousands of arrows and years and years of practice. Yeah, I, I, one of the guys that really helped my shooting was John Schultz. He was Howard Hill's protege. Mm-hmm. and he taught me correct form. And that was important because I didn't have good form when I was a kid. You know, in fact, when I got my bow at 14, I didn't know he had to sharpen the broadheads. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because there was nobody to teach you in those days. Yeah. But John taught me good form. But then that's standing sideways, perfect everything bing 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 when you're shooting at an animal um i shot a caribou on my hands and knees under a bush and he ran by me probably six yards seven yards and all i did was tense my stomach muscles lifted my elbows and shot the bow was perfectly horizontal um i shot a siberian snowshoe and I shot lying on my side and had to have the bow about eight inches off the ground in order to shoot it. It's, if you shoot a lot and if you shoot in different positions, it's going to really make you a good shot. And I'm not somebody who can shoot the dime out of the air or anything like that, but I'm hunting game and I want to be able to hit and hit well. And have you always That's shot? Awesome. Have you always shot longbows? Is that are those? Do you believe those are more forgiving, especially for your type of shooting? You know, I shoot both longbows and recurves, and I build these sinew back plains Indian bows. They're basically a really short recurve. Um, I think snap shooting the longbow for me is the best, but I have uh, one particular recurve. Uh, that 
Bob Morrison made me at 74 pounds. I took Cape Buffalo with it, leopard, uh, giraffe, and I shoot that bow fast. It's it's just some recurves I don't shoot well, some I do. Yeah. I can't believe you're still shooting 75 pounds. You're my hero at 74 years old. <laughs> <laughs> you got it uh, back. Seventy five on the bow seventy four. Yeah. What is your uh what is your uh arrow and broadhead setup look like nowadays and how has it changed? Well, on on smaller animals like you know, from elk on down I use a the wide magnus, the one thirty five grain. They're not made anymore, so I'm begging and stealing. Um and on the real big stuff like buffalo, I shot water buffalo, cape buffalo and I used the 125 grain because you're trying to penetrate massive rib bones. And I used a 1,000 yeah. grain laminated arrow on, on those critters. Are you using okay. wood, wood arrows know. for elk? Is that your arrow shaft on elk? Yeah, I'm shooting Bob Morrison's footed shafts. They weigh 640 grains with a broadhead, and yeah. they just fly fabulously. Heck yeah, awesome. that's about the same weight as mine. I like it. I just need to mine bump too, up about 20 40. pounds of weight. <laughs> so <laughs> w- when you're talking ambushing, um, do you do a lot of waterhole hunting? I know you've hunted New Mexico a bunch, and maybe we can talk about that. I know you talked about the number of bow hunters, and I can remember when I was just getting old enough to hunt, and like you could draw a New Mexico elk tag every couple years, and now it's... It's almost a once-in-a-lifetime deal for most of those units down there. Maybe you can touch on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, in 1999, we met a rancher down there. Uh, it's 18,000 acres. And we were able to negotiate a bovine lease for three guys, and it was very reasonable. And we still hunt there every year. Um, and what you find down there at at least what we found, is in the morning, you're after butyling elk moving from feed to bedding area. When they get to the bedding area, the cows will mooch around, but the bulls will circle. They'll be just going around looking for trouble. In the evenings, it's just they come out late enough so that you really need to be on a wallow or a water hole. You're not going to be able to get in front of them. So what we do is we hunt on foot in the mornings and out of blinds in the afternoon. And in the mornings when you're when you're chasing those bulls, do they shut up pretty early? I know I hunted Arizona and it seemed like you know, there was a few days where the bulls were really going and the, and it kind of got some afternoon action, but man, by eight o'clock or so it got so hot they were pretty much shutting down. You know, it really depends on the on the time of of the moon. If there's a full moon, yeah, they shut down early because they play all night. But uh, the last two years, we've had a, you know, basically dark at night. And we've had action until 11 in the morning. It just depends how close to estrus the cows are. Yeah. Makes sense. And are you hunting with the same group of guys each year uh, on this property? Yeah, I got two buddies that hunt with me. Uh, Twice I've had 
you know, because since I'm the guy that leased it, I've twice I've had one of the guys bail out for two years because I had a friend from New Zealand come over, and he got a beautiful six point bull. Nice. Awesome. And then you also, so you usually you hunt Montana and New Mexico every year. Yeah, um, that won't be the same now because the law in Montana uh, changed, and I'm a non-resident here. I'm a resident in Wyoming now. Uh-huh. And so what the, what the deal is, you get a tag, almost a guarantee, but the next year you can't even draw. Yeah. But the year after that, then you're good. And so none of us are happy about it, but this year I had... New Mexico, Montana, and Wyoming tag. So next year, I hopefully will draw a Wyoming tag, and I will get a New Mexico tag because we get a landowner permit. Mm-hmm. And are you hunting similar country in both those areas, like um, high desert type country? Uh, Wyoming, we were we were up around five thousand feet in a beautiful long valley owned by one person so they were coming into the alfalfa at night um, and we were the first bow hunters ever in there so they weren't spooked and in new mexico we're at about the same elevation 56 5700 feet and because it's only gun hunted except for us the elk are just they don't really have a clue that somebody's there. We're very, very careful. We try never to be smelled or seen. Yeah, I think that's uh, when you're hunting a, a smaller private place like that, super important because you can. It's not like uh, just roaming around the mountains. You don't want to bump them because they could take off, <laughs> and then they're not on your place anymore that you're hunting. Well, you know, I found that to be the same case when I was hunting uh, forest service ground in Montana years ago. You know, in the beginning, here they'd be, they'd be going up there to bed, they're screaming, and I knew the wind was wrong, but I had to take a chance. Pretty soon they weren't there for days. So it wasn't too long after I started getting successful, I realized if it's not right, back off, you got the next day. But so many guys push it and push it, and then the elk are gone. They're not stupid. Yeah, heck yeah. They once they smell you, they know they know the game's up. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean we're really really cautious about that, and it pays off. So, do you do much tree stand hunting, or are you doing the ground blinds when you're hunting water in the evenings? Oh, uh, oh, let's see. It's a combination. Um, in New Mexico. Two of our good water holes have elevated blinds that the rancher built. Um, in Montana, I was hunting out of a tripod. And in New Mexico, or in Wyoming, I built two ground blinds, just brush, sagebrush, and just hunkered down behind them. As it turned out in Wyoming, I called the bull in to 18 yards. And he was a big boy, and he had cavities in every single tooth in his mouth. Really? Yeah, I'm thinking he was probably 14 from looking at his teeth. And he didn't smell. He he wasn't chasing cows, but I cow called him in, and it was just beautiful. He was all by himself, huh? 
He was coming into the alfalfa field. Just a few minutes left of shooting lane. Does Wyoming have better opportunity for residents than Montana? Uh, well, Montana, as a resident, you just go buy an elk tag. There are certain areas where you draw, and that's where probably the biggest bulls are. Um, the Missouri breaks. Uh, there are a couple of particular mountain ranges that you have to draw for. But Joe Average can walk in and buy an elk tag, I don't know, 20 bucks or something like that. Um, but as a non-resident in Montana... As I said, it used to be that you drew a tag every year because the economy was terrible. Now it's changed. Um, we're not going to talk about the politics of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now there's a lot of money floating around. Let's just say it like that. And the, uh, the situation has changed so that basically what you do is you kind of study the odds. There are places in New Mexico that you can draw fairly easily. There are places in Wyoming where you can. And in Wyoming, you have an, have an advantage because you can put in as a party. And if one of you is drawn, the other one automatically gets his tag. And that's what I did this year. Another friend of mine who's a resident of Cody, we put in as a party. And... He grew, so I grew. Nice. So you need to find a resident buddy. <laughs> well, you can do it. Non yeah, non-residents can do it, too. Oh, okay. And if you have preference points, then non-residents do really well once they have enough points. Nice. I got six. Yeah, James has six points. I have one. I bought my first one this year, so... We're going to have to hit Wyoming here eventually. Yeah, and there's, I tell you, there's some beautiful bulls there. They manage it properly. There aren't too many hunters. But you do have to be careful in the western part of the state because there are an awful lot of grizzly bears. Yeah. And they are not, they, you cannot trust a grizzly, just like a great white shark. <laughs> we, we've got those right there. Yeah, have you had have you had some run-ins with grizzlies? Um, yeah, I have. Well, and, maybe, uh, fact, maybe, I, maybe drop us one of those stories here. Well, I threw my cowboy hat at, at one uh, up in Alaska when I was fishing. It was a brown bear. And then I took my three fifty seven out in case he, the cowboy hat didn't spook him because I was going to put it in my mouth and pull the trigger. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm not joking either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean. But, uh, you know, elk hunting is, takes a long time to learn. And I can, I can honestly say every single day I hunt elk, I goof or I learn something new. I figure the day I don't learn something elk hunting, I'll be dead. Yeah, you never it's get it. It's just not predictable. <clears throat> do you do you subscribe to um, being loud like elk all the time, or um, being stealthy and and as quiet as possible all the time, or somewhere in the middle? Well, elk make a lot of noise, 
So if you've got a bunch of bulls and a cow in heat and they're just crashing around, I don't worry about the noise because it's, it's just everywhere. But if I'm working on a group of elk and the rut hasn't started yet, I sneak. I just go as quietly yeah. as I can. Uh, and being short helps. I hunt in shorts and a tank top because then my clothes don't make any noise on the brush. I've got face paint, and I'm using camo shorts and tank top. Um, <laughs> just, you know, really, I mean, it's quietness that's important. And I move slowly. And when I stop, I say something, I see something, and it looks me, I stop. Because the animal was stopped. The bull I shot in Wyoming this year, I was walking out of the ground blind. I had about four or five minutes of legal shooting light left. And I came around a bush, and he was about 40 yards away. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I froze. And he just stood there, like cow called, and he came. He assumed I was a cow elk. So stealth is the best. And one other thing, I don't believe in any of this uh, scent-safe stuff and, you know, gargle this and put that over your head. You will never, ever fool an elk if you're upwind of it. You can't because they smell your nostrils, they smell your breath, they smell your ears. So what I do is I have a wind feather on the upper string of my bow. I use a turkey butt feather and a piece of dental floss. And that thing is always blowing towards me while I'm moving through the woods. I'll tell you another. Actually, I got a couple other interesting stories. My hunting partner and a guide we had on a ranch saw this big, nice bunch of elk. And they were, the bulls were just circling these cows. They're probably 80 yards from them. And there was a boulder the size of a two-story house. And it was my turn to be the stalker. My hunting partner and the guide got up on top of that rock where they could binocular, and I slithered around it and got at the base of it. And nothing was really happening close. So I just decided, okay, I'm going to put my back up against the rock, put my feet out, spread them apart, and just relax. And the bulls are bugling. I can't see them, but they're just, you know, 70 yards, 80 yards. And I hear a noise, and I look to my left, and here come two spike bulls. The first one stepped between my knees and went on. The second one put his foot between my knees and looked at me and sniffed down at my sleeve and licked it <laughs> and walked away. Wow. <laughs> you know, these young guys didn't really know what a human scent was. But there's just, if you hunt elk enough, you're going to have a lot of stories. It's an amazing sport, and if you really watch around you, it's important. It just makes it right. Yeah, they're an incredible animal, that's for sure. Oh, man, they are. So I know what? <clears throat> we've talked a lot about, you know, trying to get you on that New Mexico thing, and and tags are getting harder to draw. It seems like, you know, Everybody's saying there's less hunters and there's less hunters, but they must just all be bow hunting now because I'm I'm 38. I've been doing it for 20, 
25, 26 years, you know, since I was a little kid also, and my dad doing it since I was a baby. And, uh, like, how do we, like, what's the right way to go about the future? You know, like, for the younger guys, you know, the, I think the reason we do this podcast is to try to get guys to realize that maybe more technology is not always the best route and seeing the maybe the repercussions of that the last 25 years kind of worries me as to where we're going in the next 25 and we know you're an opinionated guy and you know what what do you think about that what what should we be doing as bow hunters to make it better or are we doomed you know not to bring up bad stuff but what do you think well i guess one of the one of the main things i think of with the young guys especially with high-tech equipment taking marginal shots. That's not fair to the animals. For example, you got a bull 25 yards staring right at you. You don't shoot him in the brisket. It doesn't work. 90% of the time, it'll go between his foreleg and his rib cage, and you've wounded an animal. It's probably going to be a bad wound because the arrow's probably going to stay in. So you have to think about your yardage, you have to understand that if you release an arrow out of a compound at 60 yards, that animal takes one step and you've got shot him. Because even as fast as they are, it's too far away. And then you have this thing called a rangefinder. So here's this bull standing there, and you go to your belt and you take it out. And you look at the bull. Okay, he's 52 yards. Then you get your arrow, put it on the string. And by that time, who knows what's going on? It's the technology has been the way for manufacturers to get instant success because Americans seem to be tuned into if I can't succeed, then I'm going to do something else. And I yeah, can't even. Yeah, and I've hunted hundreds and hundreds of days and never let an arrow go. But I love the bow hunt. And I think it's very important to learn a lot about your quarry. You need to know where an arrow has to hit to do the job correctly. You don't want to shoot light arrows on an animal as heavy as an elk. Uh, you know the old argument. You take two white balls and throw them in a snowbank. One is a golf ball. One's a ping pong ball. Same size. But which one's going to go in further? And I know guys that are shooting... 300 and some odd grain arrows and these open on impact broadheads and there's a lot of wounded elk around. Not good. You know, you need to read some knowledgeable hunters, not some writer, but a knowledgeable hunter. A guy like Don Thomas, he's a great writer, but he's a phenomenal hunter. Um, I've written articles about elk hunting. Um, Lots of guys that are very successful have done it. And it's the guys who don't care about putting heads in the record book and not not interested in bragging that are going to have the best information. It's just yeah. the way it works. As soon as you see somebody it, in a magazine it, that long blonde It sure has changed, though, hasn't it, Paul? Pardon? It sure has changed. I mean, things are, are changing now, and things have really changed over the years with just, oh, uh, like, 
the amount of hunters in the field and the equipment and really just the, the feeling, uh, uh, across the community seems to be different. No question about it. Um, instant gratification and the fact that if your buddy does it, you got to try it. And what happens I've seen is you get, let's say you take a hundred people with compounds and maybe 10 of them turn into real hunters. And you know what they do? They go right to a traditional bow. It's just, it's a better bow. I mean, think about trying to shoot a sighted compound with the bow horizontal and you're on your knees. You can't do it. Yeah, for close-to-close warfare, which bow hunting is supposed to be, you're absolutely right. You know, a real hunting situation gives you moments. It doesn't give you four minutes. Right, yeah, and so yeah, I'm I'm always practicing canting my bow all the way over, either which way, sideways, one knee, two knees, because that's all that stuff counts later. I try. I practice from almost any body position, although at 75, yeah. it's not quite as easy as it used to be. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, I I probably have taken. I'm just throwing this figure out. A hundred animals with my bow horizontal to the ground. Wow. I wouldn't have taken any of them with a compound. Yeah. Uh, uh, wait a minute. A hundred animals with your bow horizontal to the ground. That's a, that's an awesome stat. <laughs> well, you know, I'm just guessing, but, you know, the Siberian snow sheep, the greatest trophy I've ever come across, my bow is 10 inches off the ground. My hunting partner watched the whole thing. Um, the big caribou I shot up in Labrador, you know, I was just, it was just an absolute snapshot. You would never have done it with a compound. And I've shot deer that way and elk that way. I mean, if you're going to be tuned in to being a really good elk hunter, you really need to limit yourself to traditional equipment because you can shoot in virtually any position you want. You can't do that with wheels. And so as far as the the technology, I mean, what do you think what do you think the bow hunters of today, I mean, James and I are super passionate about trying to get some more of these traditional more areas of traditional bow hunting only. We have a couple of them in Oregon, we're trying to get a couple more. We you know, there's one in Oklahoma, West Virginia kind of put has one going this coming up in January and, and we're super passionate about trying to get more of that, you know, some units switched or some new hunt areas that are traditional only. But as far as that, I mean, do you think we're going the right route by, by trying to go there or, you know, like you think more regulations good or bad? I mean, I know, you know, like we're not trying to poo poo everything, but we wanted to get, get it back to where you know what bow hunting supposed to be well, close close we want to give incentive to to everybody to uh, have an experience because not everybody can afford to uh pay a trespass fee and get onto a private ranch and let's face it the woods are getting awfully busy because everybody's a bow hunter now and having some traditional only areas creates opportunity for guys that are willing to work harder 
to uh, uh, get away from the, the masses. And I think that's what bow hunting was about in the beginning. I agree. I mean, you know, special regulations, I don't like any more regulations than anybody else does, but making an area just traditional archery is wonderful. You know, I shot a compound for two years. I had the first compound ever sold in Montana, and I had to send away to Jennings to get it shipped from California. After two years, I realized I didn't have a hunting weapon. I missed so many opportunities because of it. So I went back to my longbow and got John Schultz to teach me a better shooting form and stuff. And it just, it's so natural in the woods. It's equivalent to a really great wing shot with a dog and pheasants. He snaps that shotgun up and the bird goes down. And that's to me what traditional archery is. It's you. It's your reflexes. It's your hand-eye coordination. And it's much more rewarding because it's a lot more work. Yeah, and for sure. But the problem with our American society is the instant gratification and there's an easier route. And that's our point. It's like, I don't, you know, there's a point where it's like, I don't blame these guys for taking the easier route. The woods are crowded, this and that, you know, like they're having a heck of a time. So like these, these seasons are, or a way to kind of push them in that direction that they maybe wouldn't have gone to, you know, anyways, you know. It, but there's also the the other little, you know, the elephant in the room, and, th- and that's the hunting industry. Um, oh, we got man. a local archery shop here, and uh, in the wintertime, a couple guys get together when it's raining, you know, here on the Oregon coast, it just rains all winter. So we'll get together and we'll shoot at the archery shop on Wednesday night. And it's a compound archery shop. And the owner of the shop gets our $5 for coming in to shoot uh, together that evening. But he's trying to figure out how can I get more of your guys' money? He's like, can I order some strings? Can I, what can I get to sell you guys? And I'm like, well, my string, my, my buddy, my buddy makes my string and my buddy makes my bow. And I helped make this bow and, and, uh, you know, oh, yeah, this guy makes this tab, and that guy makes these feathers, and he's just like, you guys are making all your own stuff. And and the, the archery guy is like, he, he can't figure out how to uh, to penetrate into that marketplace because there's, there's really no room because it's really not what it's about. And so I think that that is also a driving force is that, you know, get, especially these young guys, they think they need um, – they're being sold to magazines, YouTube videos, the commercials. I mean, they're convinced that they have to have all this stuff before uh, the season even begins. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a catch 27. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, um, I'm kind of a redneck and I won't say catch 22. It's too yuppie. So I can't say catch 27. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, I go into the local health food store with my Make America Great Again hat just looking for somebody to try and take it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a wild world we live in right now, that's for sure. I mean there's there's 
positives to all the technology and there's definitely negatives and unfortunately i think you know bow hunting has uh taken a big hit on the negative side over the years i mean it's it's good that we get more more people into the bow hunting but like you said even even if a hundred guys try it you know a lot of guys don't keep trying it you know they do it for a while and they get kind of bored with it because almost because it's easy and where traditional bow hunting is just so addictive because you know it's like the guys that want to master golf you know like they try their whole lives they it's not something you master it's something it's like an art that you're just constantly trying to better yourself and you can be doing it for 75 years and, and still go out every every time and learn something you know, the day you don't learn something about archery or elk or whatever, you're just done. And one of the things that really has been important for me is to get out there and prove to myself, not to anybody else, I don't put my head in the record book, prove to myself that I can outsmart that animal. And in most cases, I can't. But the idea is, I'm going to try. And what it's done is made me way better at stalking, planting stalks, slithering around on my stomach, because the average guy is shooting at 50, 60 yards. And you need to be close. And what it means is, your skill will improve vastly by being a traditional shooter, as long as you stick with it. It isn't killing, it's the hunting. It's a long road, for sure. Yeah. I mean, if I couldn't bow hunt, I would have no reason to live. That's (laughs) the way I feel about it. I really, I'm serious. It's it's basically a huge portion of my life. Yeah, a lifestyle. I know. I feel you, man. It'd be be hard to, it'd be hard to get up and, and not have that to look forward to every day you know at least i mean we just ended elk season and and we are you know just scheming about next year (laughs) you know it's already that's that's how it works same here so (laughs) here's the thing though bob yeah we've got paul bruner on the line i mean 74 is that what you said 74 paul 75 75 years old, been doing this since he was 14. So, I mean, like, that is the dream right there. I mean, yeah, that is so awesome that you are uh, still chasing uh, and pursuing what makes you so happy, and you've been able to do it uh, into your 70s. I mean, that I think that that's uh, what it's all about right there. Well, genetically, I got lucky, but I also really try to stay in shape. Um, you know, I've had a replacement knee on the left side, and I wore it out in five years, so I had to have a new one. But I just don't stop. What's the point? <laughs> so staying in yeah. shape, do you, do you, I mean, are you still cattle ranching? Or are you, do you, you know, do you work out at your age? Like, did you when you were in your 30s and 40s, like, for us younger guys, like, how do we be in Paul Bruner shape when we're 75? Do you drink exactly. uh, kombucha? Do you drink uh, Coors Light? Like, what's the key? <laughs> <laughs> New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, <laughs> All right, I'm going to write this down. 
All right, I'm a wine guy. <laughs> and, you know, I'm in a bow shop, and I use my upper body on these bows, and it's a sweaty job. I don't sit around. I hate to watch television. I, I'm just going. And, you know, I'm blessed with the fact that my, my folks were very, very fit until they died. It's genetic. But if you love something enough, you won't do stuff that will take it away from you. So I watch my carb intake. I don't do much sugar. Um, I'll drink wine, but that's not a whole lot. Maybe a cold beer once in a while. And I hike. And that really makes a big difference. Yeah, do you do a lot of shed hunting and stuff in the spring? Do I do a lot of... Shed hunting in the spring? Yeah, I used to, but we sold our ranch, which was loaded with whitetail, because my wife has fibromyalgia, and it was just getting too much to be 50 miles out of town. She couldn't do the ranch stuff anymore. And so... I, I shed hunt, but not like we used to. We used to pick up oh, 50, 60 big sheds a year. Yeah, that seems to be a great way to stay busy in the spring is get out there and poke around the hills. I used to do it a lot, but I've slowed down in the last several years. My daughter's getting old enough. She'll be four next year. I took her out quite a bit this year, so that's a that's definitely well, a good mushroom hunting. Mushroom hunting, yeah. Yeah, I need to start yeah. doing yep. that. Yep, I'm going to go look at mushrooms this weekend. Well, I'll tell you something I do in May, and then again around the 1st of October, my hunting partner, Toothall, and I kill rattlesnakes, lots of them. <laughs> oh, shoot. Awesome. So you get mm. to use them for bow, bow backing and stuff, too? Yeah, we took 648 rattlers out of one den in 10 days. What? And I have a freezer full of them. <laughs> what? Wow. Do you eat them? <laughs> well, you know, I have. And they say yeah. they taste like chicken. Well, chicken tastes like rattlesnake. But chicken has meat. <laughs> These things are bony, and and they do have a yeah. lot of parasites. But uh, yeah. they make beautiful bowbacks, and we have ranchers that are just begging us to come and get them because of kids and dogs. and it's uh, We have a lot of rattles. Have you ever been bit? I've been hit on the boot, but never been through the boot. Oh, man. Oof. Yeah, those, those things do you, those things do you, me uh, out. Do you shoot, do you shoot uh, every day? Uh, probably not every day, but five days a week, sometimes seven yep. days a week. Um, I was just bow hunting for deer in Missouri, and I never shot an arrow because I was too busy hunting and just didn't find a big buck. But, you know, I draw the bow. Pardon? Were you hunting out of a tree stand in Missouri? Yeah. 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 Trying to still hunt whitetails there is really tough. It's really noisy and lots of briars. But we saw a lot of deer, but just nothing big enough. Awesome. So what's the big plans for elk next year? Hunt. <laughs> Hunting. Uh, Paul. Do you, Paul, I know like our season opens early here and it opens last weekend of August. Um, I think 
Montana's opens kind of September around fifth or sixth, and Wyoming's open September first. And I don't know. Do you do you hunt the second season down in New Mexico usually? We uh, what we do is we go down to New Mexico on the first, and there are plenty of elk on the ranch, but the bigger bulls are still up high. And we scout and scout, sit in blinds. I take some sniper rifles and shoot furry dogs. And then usually about the 12th or so, the big bulls start to show up. And at that point, we get some heavy action, but we usually leave about the 20th for our Montana hunt. Well, next year I won't have one, but I should draw another Wyoming tag, I think. So... We have 20 days, but the last five or six, we got some really good bulls around, and they they get pretty goofy. Yeah, yeah. They come are... off. They they come off a ranch uh, called the Vermejo Park Ranch, which is 640,000 acres, and our lease adjoins it. And they come out of there because it's high and snowy, and so. And, you know, they they can't hunt 640,000 acres and spook everything. So all of a sudden these bulls show up, and then it's, you know, Katie barred the door. But, boy, it's tough because you got a lot of cows and eyeballs everywhere. Yeah, that op- open country is tough, too. It's tough to get close. Yeah, we've got open country and timber, but, you know, lots of times they're out in the open, and it's tough. And I don't like crawling on my belly in the grass, knowing that I could part the grass and there'd be Johnny No Shoulders looking at me all coiled up. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, those snakes. Right. Heck with those. Well, I've had that happen. Oof. And I'll tell you something else. You know what? Bear spray does not work on them. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's good to I know. turned one... <laughs> I turned one red, and they don't have eyelids. His eyes were red. They breathed through their nostrils. And that snake never changed the motion, nothing. Oh, I had one. I don't know if I told the story yet, but I had one in my... I was sitting in a on a water hole. Well, they call them tanks in Arizona. I was down in Arizona this year. And uh, I heard uh, just a little brush in front of me is all it was, you know, a little homemade little blind I'd made and I heard what sounded like a rattle but I was I was like ah oh, that can't be you know it wasn't like one coiled up rattle and it was like one moving through the grass you know just a little and I thought no that's nothing and then I heard it again and I knew I'm like okay that's a rattlesnake and it's close and so I stood up and I looked and there was a little rock bank right in front of me and I'm looking on those rocks you know like maybe like three or four yards away and, I, and I'm like, man, he's got to be just slithering along there. I look, I don't see him. And then I look down by my feet at the base of that brush had piled up, and I see the rattles sticking up. And I'm like, <laughs> holy, like, it's right there at my feet. And so I immediately just kind of backed up. I backed out of the little juniper I was under. I reached back in with my hand and grabbed my my bow and my crap out of there, and I and I – I was like, holy smokes, I walked around to the front of the blind, and he was he was right in that brush in the front of me, and so then I was like, well, I don't want to make too much racket. I ended up, you know, 
10 rocks and two broken arrows later, he was done, but <laughs> I didn't see anything that night. And it was a, it was a darn shit show for quite a while there, but cause he curled up, coiled up right in the tree next, like in my blind basically. And it was a juniper bush. So it was super, I couldn't get an arrow through there. I couldn't get a rock through there. At one point I, I hit him with, I hit him with my blunt and he's, you know, now he's really ticked off. And, you know, it was probably a 30, 36 inch snake or something. And I'm, I'm reaching down through the brush at one point trying to grab my arrow to drag him out. And I'm thinking, he's as long as my arrow. That's, that's probably not a good move. And then I, I let go. I'm like, okay. And anyway, I finally got him out the front of it and was able to finish the deal. But yeah, I hate those things, man. They are, I've been hunting the desert the last few years and I've had some close calls with them. And, ugh, those things creep me out. And no, I didn't eat it. I, I've, I've wanted to. That was my goal this year was to, to eat one, but I just can't do it. They slither around for hours after you kill them. I just, I couldn't do it. Oh, I thought it was good. Well, you know, I hunt with a guy named Doug Otte. Um, you guys probably remember I wrote an article about being burned in a fire up on the Arctic Circle, and Doug was with me, and he was in Africa. He's been in Africa with me several times, but he went on his own, and he was in a brush line, pretty nicely built, and about an eight-foot black mamba came in the blind. Ugh. And that's basically, you get bit, you've got about ten minutes. Uh. Yeah. Oh, no. The story that he tells about that, because he shot it, and he just cut it a bit. And here it is right above him in the brush up over the, you know, they had a roof and it was trying to come down and man, he bailed out. He stuck his bow back in and shot again. I think he used every arrow in his quiver before he finally killed it. And that, that is scary stuff. Well, yeah, even those rattlesnakes, you know, where you're, you know, where, where I was, you're, you're an hour and a half on crappy rocky roads just to get to camp and then you're an hour and a half from town you know like and that's if you can if you can walk out you know like depending on where they hit you you might you know you might be done you know yeah i mean usually a rattlesnake bite is survivable but there's a tremendous amount of muscle and tissue damage but we've had two guys bitten in montana in the last few years and they were dead in a couple hours it just depends on the venom and where it bite, where the bite is and stuff. Yeah, well, I won't be, I won't be out snake hunting this spring. I'll, I'll call you if I needed some rattlesnake backing. <laughs> <laughs> you got any more questions, James? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, I think we could probably talk uh, all night long. I'd love to get you back on and talk uh, some whitetails and hear some more uh, Paul Schaefer stories. We'll have to do it again. Well, I have a few X-rated bow hunting stories, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it was, it was great, Paul. We really appreciate your time. We know you're a super, super busy guy, keeping at it, and uh, we appreciate your time. And like like James said, we'll have to. We know you've traveled the world and done a lot of amazing stuff, so we'll have to try to get you back on and do some of that. So, um, good luck out there. Yeah, we're we're still chasing get... white tails and. We're going to have to get him back back on just to hear the snow sheep story. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, one thing, one thought I have is I made 
I think 14 videos with Stony Wolf Video Production. And they weren't kill videos. They were teaching videos. And I feel just like Fred Bear did, and Fred was a friend of mine, it's your job as you get older to teach the newcomers the right way to do it. And that's why I don't mind doing something like we've done tonight. I'd like to help people, have them do it the right way, and have them do it for the right reasons. Amen. Once again, we'd like to thank the listeners. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. It helps the podcast out a ton. Check us out on Instagram. We have an awesome Kafaro backpack giveaway going on right now. And we plan to do some more giveaways uh, as the holidays uh, approach. We'd also like to thank Kafaro International, Andy Ponce at Addictive Archery, Sherwood Shaft, and the guys at Compton Traditional. Keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. Let's go outside and shoot.